I think the most interesting one for me in my career so far has been getting attuned to what it feels like to be in like a physiological state that's primed for flow. Mm. Uh, and so I've done a ton of writing over the last three years. Before that, I would I did a few blog posts. I would journal a lot, but now I've been I mean, I've been writing a ton. Mm. <laughs> right? I write a newsletter almost every week. We've been writing. I wrote almost this entire guide, and. I also have found that I think really well by writing them. So I, when I'm really struggling with either a relationship issue at work or outside of work or whatever, I'll write about it and just ask myself questions and other questions. And every once in a while I found that I'll write out a four or five paragraph sequence and I'm like, that is really good. Uh -huh. like, you know, like, <laughs> like, like I've done enough writing now that you see that and you're like, that, wow. And what I try to do is notice how I feel in that because now I've noticed that you know three weeks later I'll be walking down the street after I come back from the gym and I feel that way. And I'm like, oh this I have the feeling the feeling that usually corresponds with great writing is happening right now. I need to run home and get to a laptop. <laughs> Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today was Andy Sparks, uh, the CEO of Holloway. And Holloway is a company that's writing a lot of interesting content for people who are building companies and want to find find access to the best thinkers on those particular things that they're dealing with. Um, and he has a lot of very valuable things to say about writing, the importance of writing to figure out what's important for you, both at a personal life and in your business life. Uh, Andy started a fair amount of companies himself. He's got a lot of wisdom here on how to, uh, those really difficult things that we, we that are required of us when we're starting a company and he's right in the middle of it. Um, so this is like access to fresh wisdom about what it's like to start a company in 2019. Uh, so I think you'll find some very valuable insights in this in this podcast. And if you do, please find me on Stuart Alsop, III at Twitter uh, to share your thoughts with me. Just let you know, let me know what you think. Um, I'm also writing short daily newsletter uh, with some of the insights I'm gaining from doing this podcast and just living my life. Uh, and that can be found at stuartalsop.substack.com. Hope you enjoy it. Have a great day. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Andy Sparks, the CEO of Holloway. Uh, they publish comprehensive practical guides, each one researched, written, and refined by experts. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so let's yeah let's talk a little bit more about uh, about Holloway and how you got started with it. Like, what is the problem that you guys are solving? Yeah, great starting question. Um, let's see. So the problem that we're really interested in is that there's kind of this promise of the internet that we all grew up around, that it would be this place that you could go and learn anything, and your access to different experts, whether you grew up around you know a family with a great parent who knew how to teach you stuff or None of that really should matter. You should be able to go online and teach yourself anything. Mm. That's kind of like I bought I bought that pitch when I was growing up. Uh -huh. And then uh, when I left my last company, Mattermark, I went on and I was trying to research how to start a company in the clean water space. Mm. And I couldn't find any of the stuff that I needed by going to Google. I had to get connected to somebody that I knew through my network, which was fortunate that I had that. But I started to ask, could we build something where people wouldn't have to have a pre-existing network in order to be... You know, effective or to be able to research something. Um, mm. And so we started there and um, at least that's the half that I started on. But basically it's just this idea that there's a lot of the world that other people have navigated before and it's, and it's not, just hard to find it. Yeah, it's so not you, clear. It's not, it's all opaque behind people's, uh, well, it's, I guess it's people's inability to, to share it, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and there's some really cool companies that have started down this path, like Quora was always like trying to get people, you know, the knowledge out of people's heads and onto the screen. Um, and it's such a big problem. Yeah. It's so broad because you could say, oh, we're going to do this for everything from clean water to nutrition to business to personal finance. And I think there's a lot of temptation to go there first. And we're right. saying, let's not go broad first. Mm -hmm. Let's go super specific. And so the first subject that we wrote on was on equity compensation, oh, which cool. is super niche. Uh -huh. You know, how many people really care about equity compensation? But the and people who do care about it really care about they it. They really care about <laughs> it, right? And it's yeah. so nuanced and it's so technical and it's it's complex. And even I, after being a founder for eight years, 
I still sometimes get an equity question and I'm like, how does that work? <laughs> like, like, yeah. We even wrote something on that. And I, I continually have to question it and reference our own guide. Huh. Um, and it's just things like that. That So that's the first one. Is it out yet? That one is out. We published uh -huh. that one in August of 2018. Okay. And it was totally free. It was kind of our like, let's see if anyone cares about something so sufficiently uh -huh. in depth. Um, and that one has a little bit more of a backstory because my co-founder Josh and I met uh, when a friend introduced us. And he had been publishing these. Um, he published, I think, three of them, these guides on GitHub. Mm. And the first one was a, was we, we redid the equity compensation guide. But he had done one on equity comp, published it on GitHub so other people could come in and contribute to it, mm. which works really well as long as you're only writing about stuff that were engineers or your entire contributing base. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like he did another one on, on Amazon Web Services that was really great. Uh, but if once you get into topics where the contributors are anyone other than engineers, no one really gets how GitHub works. Yeah. And the whole nature of pull requests and this really interesting collaborative tool mm. that has been built um, in GitHub. So we have basically said, how can we create something that's really valuable for people to read and then build the collaboration layer on top of it for people who aren't engineers later? Interesting. And so this brings up the question of like timeless content versus content that is ephemeral. Uh, so like engineering has a very short half-life, right? Like, you know, the things that are necessary to build something today are very different from yeah. what they were a year ago. What about content that is timeless or like, you know, I guess philosophical in, in a sense, like, are you guys thinking about down the road doing stuff like that? Or are you guys going to stick to content that is? Yeah, there's two aspects of that that are really interesting. One is uh, we, we even have this table that we have printed out at Holloway. Uh, we call it content shelf life. Uh. And we've mapped all oh, these companies. And if you do like their content has a shelf life of seconds, huh. which like Snapchat content is a shelf life of seconds, right? It's there and it's gone. There's some what different services that have a shelf life of a day or two. New York Times articles are probably a shelf life of about a week most of the time. Mm. Some people go back and look at it, but they're usually weeks to months. Very few companies are building shelf life content with a shelf life of years, let alone decades. Mm. Um, I think that Wikipedia is definitely one of those companies where you can see that they have a shelf life of probably like centuries, even uh, questionably. Yeah. Um, so that's the first part that's interesting of that. The other part is um, we decided to narrow our focus, and it's still pretty broad, but to narrow our focus to be work-related content. So all of the different wheels that get reinvented by every company take something like hiring people. You could have endless podcasts, people talking about sharing the same 15 tips on hiring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there should just be a canonical resource for, hey, if you're hiring for the first time, just go read this. Mm. And in, instead of us writing book after book after book after book after book and podcast after podcast after podcast, why don't we all just contribute to a single knowledge base on how to hire people? Because it, people are always going to need to hire people. Yeah, but it, and it seems like the the content that people search out f at that given time period happened to be related to hype. So how do you guys separate from the hype of what's what's popular and create content that is actually uh, valuable regardless of what cycle we're in? Yeah, so I'll use the example of hiring, for example. Um, all of our guides are written to be intensely practical, so it's something that you can take and you can use immediately. Um, a lot of those books are hyped up because there's someone who's proven, right? Mm, they've yeah. done it. And so you trust that since they've done it, it must work, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And since there's no real like best practice benchmark to compare that on, there's this cycle of is this system better than that system? There's just no quantitative measurement of mm -hmm. is this book's system going to be better than it's like Ben Horowitz's new book going to be a more effective management tool than Andy Grove's mm. like I don't, even though probably 50% of the ideas are the same I think Ben would even say that yeah. <laughs> a lot of his his principles are based off of that uh -huh. but like where does all this come from it's just because there's not I think in the absence of a place where people know to go where there's reliable tools they just kind of take the next thing because that person's it's famous or yeah. interesting yeah. and and there's a lot of FOMO around, like, if I don't read the latest mm. system on this, then maybe I'll miss something great and be left behind. Yeah. Um, so what we'd rather do is create a place for those best experts to come and they can contribute to this. So mm -hmm. our next guide is on, uh, well, we have two more guides in the works, one on raising venture capital, and then the next one's on technical recruiting and hiring. Mm. And the third one on technical recruiting and hiring, um, the lead author for that used to be the head of product engineering for Quora. 
another one of the main contributing authors for that uh, used to be the CTO of Dropbox. Mm. And so these are people that like Another they've stuff. built and scaled companies recently. Uh, and Alien Lerner from Interviewing IO has been involved in it. And we want to continue to get people of that level to contribute to it over time. So this comes back to your original question about shelf life, which is we publish all of our content in edition numbers. Mm -hmm. So just like software comes out and you have you know version 1.0. When we ship our guides, they're edition 1.0. And then we have plans to ship 1.1 and 1.2 and 1.3 mm -hmm. that follow that. And so we might have a set of experts that help us publish 1.1, or sorry, publish 1.0, but then we could bring in a whole new expert to help publish a module of 1.1 and continue to just grow on that and grow on that. Interesting. So that's where that's kind of theme of GitLab and kind of multiple sources comes in and stuff like that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, because there's, I think, that, what is it? Uh, it's like Bill Joy. Bill Joy's law from Sun, Mike Sun was like that no single, uh, the, all the best knowledge will never exist inside of one organization. Uh -huh. And so there's no, all the best knowledge isn't going to sit in one expert's head. Mm. You're going to need multiple people to come in. And some of the things that we do that are really interesting that I think a lot of times rhyme with Wikipedia. Um, so Wikipedia has a lot of different people all collaborating on one space. But the way that an encyclopedia works is there's no room for opinion. Mm. If there's any opinion, they mm. just cut it. That's one of their rules for mm. how an encyclopedia works. And we believe people do want opinions. They just want expert opinions. Mm. And instead of us being, you know, the the arbiters of which opinion is better, what we like to do, one of our principles is that where there's difference of opinion, we just showcase it. Mm. So take on a venture capital example. It's like some investors who are experts believe convertible notes are dangerous and bad, and other people believe price rounds are the best way to go. Uh -huh. And you could get people who are experts. Totally disagree. Totally disagree. Yeah. Instead of us saying one of them is right and one of them is wrong, we just say, hey, you as a new person to this need to know that there's a debate here. Experts sit on both sides and you need to make up your own mind. Mm. So how much is the, is the of the writing is done by a core staff that uh, is a part of Holloway and by contributors? So for the first one, uh, it was the first guide, the equity compensation guide was a collaboration between Josh, my co-founder, and uh, a lawyer, Joe Wallen. Uh. And that was probably, I'd say the, the vast majority of that one was done by Josh. Um, the second guide on raising venture capital, I wrote the most of. Mm. But then our uh, senior editor, Rachel, has just done a massive amount. Like if to her, mm. <laughs> she went from, I think, not having very much knowledge or interest, frankly, in venture <laughs> capital to now being so sick of it. <laughs> yeah. um, and she's actually written an entire chapter of it herself. Um, and then... We've had probably 50 different people be involved in that one in different pieces, whether oh, wow. it's small sections that they've done edits on or a total review of the guide line by line, um, interviews with other people. And then our third guide on technical recruiting and hiring, very little has been written by Holloway mm. staff. So we actually got another author for that one to come on and basically lead it. Mm. And so the model is kind of you get, a, you get this anchor author who's external, that's what we want to do going on, is they, they kind of do most of it. They can bring in other experts, just like um, for technical recruiting and hiring, we brought in like 10 or so people who have been really involved in kind of a pod to help develop the content. Uh -huh. And it's great because they all have different opinions on what's important. Uh, interesting, right? yeah. That's, and that's, that's kind of allowing to get out of your guys' organizational knowledge and then reaching out of other organizations to all bring it into one central place. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're more, I mean, another way to put it is we spent the last two years learning how to build a publishing company. Uh, right, <laughs> yeah. We were like, uh -huh. how do you get 30 people to come together and pool all of their knowledge on a subject and make sure that we get it covered by the best people? Mm -hmm. We basically spent a year and a half figuring that out. Yeah, <laughs> and it's new. And how, how, much, how big of a shelf life do you think that the lessons you guys have learned in that will be? I think and on on publishing. Yeah. Um, I think quite I think that knowledge itself will have a lot that'll live for a long time for uh -huh. us. Um, a lot of it is a coordination issue, uh -huh. but it's also like how do you reconcile different ideas and how do you pull in the right people and how do you have the right incentives um, to get these authors to write? You know, oftentimes it's not a matter of can you pay them because mm. they usually have actually done pretty well for themselves. Yeah. It's like. Can we pay you, but also can we get you an audience? Oh, interesting, because they're you, looking for an audience. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah, we, we like to um, say there's like three main skills that you need for, for producing content. Mm. <clears throat> you need expertise. You need to be able to articulate that expertise. And you need to be able to distribute it. Mm. And some people can do all three, mm. right? Like, and you know these people. 
Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like there are people who have their own podcasts or they're Tim Ferriss for or whatever you name it. But most people have one of those skills. Yeah. Maybe they have two. Uh-huh. And so if you can take someone who's a total expert, a practitioner, an operator through and through, they usually haven't written a ton of stuff before. Mm-hmm. We're fortunate our yep. you know, first author is you know, he's got his MBA in addition to being an engineer and he can write well. But not everyone who's knows what they're doing can write that well. Yeah. For oftentimes when we're doing the legal sections for the our guides on uh, they're writing legally. It was just or, like yeah, me interviewing yeah. four lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, none of this is usable. Like, I, have yeah. to, I have to now translate it back yeah. to everyone else. Interesting. And then, so that that's the the three skills that are needed is so interesting because so I've I've just started writing. It's my tenth day of writing uh, in a row for newsletter. First time I've tried to actually write every day and publish publish every day as a as awesome. a as a as like a habit, um, and been noticing that how much of the writing itself is the distribution and how much of it is just the articulation. Because yeah. those seem like they're not totally separate. They seem somewhat similar, and that. Because if somebody's right, if you're writing something that's really good, and then somebody reads it, they act, they become part of that distribution right. channel, right? And they then they share it, which is the ultimate form of sharing. If you can get somebody, if you can write something so good that somebody gets that emotional um, incentive to share it, then that then they become part of this distribution, right? Totally right. When you yeah. get that recommendation of this was so good, I now want to send it to other people. Mm-hmm. It's definitely part of it. What is the key to that? So, well, if I knew the key to that, I shouldn't. <laughs> if, if I could only answer that in a few sentences. Yeah. Um, some of the keys to it are just focusing on creating value for the user, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's interesting to think about text as product, right? So if someone is dealing with a specific challenge at work, can you give them a two-paragraph product mm-hmm. <laughs> that basically helps them now get unblocked and move on either you know look good in front of their boss or get that task done faster or whatever it is and so what we try to do is just focus on creating useful helpful content that actually helps unblock somebody Mm. um and it's a strange balance between trying to do that with brevity but also to give someone everyone they need Mm. to give them everything they need and um so let's see if I can, I still, I feel like I only answered that like one eighth. Um, one interesting challenge is always just speaking to like, what are the different benefits that you think that the content will bring? So for something that's so long form, each one of our guides so far, I think the equity comp guide is almost a hundred pages. If you print it out, the oh, wow. venture capital want to be almost 300. Whoa. Um, but one thing that we've done <clears throat> is we make each section something that can either be read over a lunch break or before you put the kids to bed. Like, it's about an hour, mm. right? But it should be something that after you finish it, you should be able to do something you weren't able to do before. Mm. And that, in and of itself, is a benefit of, like, after you read this, you'll be able to do something that you never been that you weren't able to do at the beginning and making sure that the reader feels like, oh, okay, I get what I'm getting myself into. And so there's some of that as, like, it's marketing of its own content mm-hmm. in the writing, right? Yeah. Which I think is what you're talking That's about. That's what I was the, talking the about. The distribution yeah. part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that that's a good, like, sort of NPS metric of, like, is it so good they'll recommend it? Mm. There's this guy, Matt Mochari, who I like his definition of, like, product market fit, which is, like, is it so good that people are paying for it and they're sharing it? Uh, yeah. Because uh-huh. <laughs> if they're paying for it and telling people about it, they love it. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So we talk a lot about creativity on this show, and it sounds like you have some insight into creativity uh, particularly the type of creativity uh, of, of you're, you've talked a lot about unblocking, um, helping people unblock. Uh, what are the main blockages that either you guys in your daily work or the people that you're helping uh, face when creating? Oh, man. Um, I think I'll answer the personal one first. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I think the most interesting one for me in my career so far has been getting attuned to what it feels like to be in like a physiological state that's primed for flow. Mm. Uh, and so I've done a ton of writing over the last three years. Before that, I would, I did a few blog posts. I would journal a lot, but now I've been, I mean, I've been writing a ton, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I've read a newsletter almost every week. We've been writing, I wrote almost this entire guide. And I also have found that I think really well by writing. Yeah. So I, 
when I am really struggling with either a relationship issue at work or outside of work or whatever, I'll write about it and just ask myself questions and questions. And every once in a while, I found that I'll write out a four or five paragraph sequence that I'm like, that is really good. Uh-huh. Like, you know, like, like, like yeah. I've done enough writing now that you see that and you're like, that, wow. And what I've tried to do is notice how I feel mm-hmm. in that moment. Because now I've noticed that, you know, three weeks later, I'll be walking down the street after I come back from the gym and I feel that way. Mm. And I'm like, oh, this, I this have the feeling, yeah. the feeling that usually corresponds with great writing is happening right now. I need to run home and mm. get to a laptop. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go and write while I have it uh-huh. right now. And that's been one of the coolest things for me is to know that like, that is what it feels like to be properly attuned to creativity uh-huh. and to just harness that when you have it. Cause you don't know if it's going to come back next week or next month. Mm. So that's been something that's really interesting just personally for me. Um, I think focus is a huge theme. Focus blocks of time is a really practical tool that anyone can use. Like I think today with turning on notifications and your computer and your phone and open offices where people can come tap you on the shoulder, that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff just ruins creativity. Like Mm -hmm. you're, you're 15 minutes into something that's, you're just getting started, whether it's designing something or you're writing something, you name it. And, someone interrupts you and you're like, well, there goes that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they've done a lot of research on this and it says like 20 to 30 minutes or something like that. To yeah. Go back to that task. Definitely. Yeah. Um, other ones I've found personally are like, I think a little bit less, I don't know if it's even traditional or like, they're not the things that you read about in the book. It's like having really rich friendships and people that you can kick stuff around with and criticize. Like I had this one friend, we meet up every Friday after work, almost every Friday. And we have this great friendship. And part of what's so great about him is that we'll each kind of kick around stuff we've been thinking around and he'll poke holes in it. Mm-hmm. And it's not in a way that makes me feel defensive. And relationships are funny in a way because some people can give you feedback in a way you just like, you just automatically bristle at it. Mm-hmm. And other people can give feedback in a way and you don't even really know why it's happening the way that it is. But they give you these sort of they pick at your ideas in a way that is not comfortable. Pers- yeah, not personal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that that's one of the ways that I've been, I think, creative in a sense of just like being able to learn and apply new ideas to my work every week and to different relationships in my life. It's just to have somebody to kick it around with. Mm. Like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Mm. And actually, probably never say I'm struggling with this. I'm probably like, man, you know what's really driving me fucking nuts? <laughs> uh, yeah. And you just talk it through and you have someone to be kind of like your thinking partner. Yeah. Um, the more and more I talk to other people, though, I think it doesn't seem like very many people have found that. Mm. And I almost feel like I need another one just in case something happens to Samir, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is really interesting because it's something I've been noticing recently about the coach that I'm working with. Yeah. Um, and for most of my time working with therapist coaches, and I've worked with quite a few, uh, most of them are very kind and compassionate, which is important. Uh, but I've been noticing with this new coach, he really specializes in telling me exactly when I'm bullshitting or exactly yeah. when I'm um speaking from a place that's not of truth basically yeah. uh and i find that really valuable and he has a particular way of doing it which doesn't make me feel that it's yep. personal at all um, right and he's like really good at this uh and i've been noticing how important that is and how for how long i shied away from that because truth can be uncomfortable and, and that type of feedback is really difficult yeah um yeah i don't really have a question out of this but i'm just i'm just kind of uh uh noticing that that same type of um uh, interaction is, is really helpful. Um, what do you think about, about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I've, there's kind of this stereotypical, I don't even know how much real validity there is to it versus it's just a confirmation bias of people who grew up on the East coast. I don't know where you grew up. I grew up here. You grew up here. Um, I grew up outside of Philadelphia and I I feel like it's a lot more common to run into people on the East coast that are just direct and they'll say something on their mind and they don't do it out of a sense of malice. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they're just more likely to say what they think think. that's dumb or I don't agree with you or, and it's not personal, right? It's not an attack. Um, and I found I've had to temper myself even out here on the West coast more often when I'm not mad at somebody, I'm just the way that I speak can be a little bit more direct and aggressive Mm -hmm. and not everyone vibes super well with that and you do have to figure out how that works but i think that with 
when getting feedback, part it all comes down to trust, right? Your coach, you trust mm-hmm. because you literally are paying them money yeah. to help you get better at something. And so when they tell you that they think that, you know, you're blowing smoke up, then he's like, I'm going to tell you this because that's what you hired me to do. Yeah. Versus if, you know, your friend or, you know, your partner tells you that you're like, you have the trust, but it also feels like it's so personal because mm. you're afraid of losing that person's love and res- and all of that. And so it feels like you might, I think there's a lot more wrapped up in it Yeah. versus a coach relationship's really easy it's because clear. it's like, it's clear yeah. what their job is and that you trust them. And a good friendship, I think can be built on a lot of that too. But I don't know. It's, I wish I knew, I wish I had more of this articulated and I'm probably gonna go write about this now. <laughs> Why is it that this relationship works so well? Yeah. Well, this podcast did start as a kind of <clears throat> writing prompt for me because I was, I didn't know what to write about. So I was starting to interview other people oh, to yeah. write about. So, uh, so, uh, so yeah, welcome. <laughs> yeah. I could talk about this one forever. I mean, uh-huh. like other good writing prompts. Um, one of the writing prompts I found to be really useful in my life, uh, in journaling. Do you know, are you familiar yep. with like morning oh. pages? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Um, but the prompt I like the most is what are you avoiding? Uh, and, and so you just like write out all this. I'm like, what am I avoiding? What am I avoiding? This conversation or the fact that I've you know gained 10 pounds or whatever, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. or what? Am, and then after you write that list, you're like, now what are you really avoiding? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, and you know, immediately what it is. I've done this with friends and I'm like, what are you avoiding? And they're like, they'll tell me a few things. And I'm like, now what is the thing that you thought about immediately when I asked that question that you didn't want to tell me because mm-hmm. you're like scared of dealing Such with it? Such a good question. And then you write that one down and you're like, oh, I've got to deal with it now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's definitely a good one for creativity, I think. Mm-hmm. That's um, such a huge point that I want to go on, which is that that's exactly what my coach, basically every single time, I'll, he'll ask me a question like that. And he's like, no, no, what are you really avoiding? Like, what, 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 is, the, what is the layer beneath that? Yeah. And it's like such a key, important thing. And all every time I know it, you know, it's like it's, it's always been on my mind. But part of me has, has kind of shoved it off into a corner where I don't look, basically. Yeah. And it's like, it, and it's so hard for me to do that for myself. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think human beings have this ability to compartmentalize and stick away I think it's the same reason why when you're confronted with a big to-do list, you bite off the like, oh, I'll just file my expense report. Mm. <laughs> because filing my expense report just involves collecting receipts and it's easy and I'll be able to check the box and say that it's accomplished in an hour versus the like, figure out how to monetize company. Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, how, like that checkbox is like gnarly and you don't really know how to do it in you you know that you could get three days in and made no visible progress mm-hmm. to anyone other than you in your own head. And you might have a few new fresh ideas to talk about your friend with on Friday, but like, it's just hard to see that progress. And I think that we like, I think that we like to have a sense of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes the things you're avoiding tend to be relationship based. At least my, the things I've been avoiding tend to be relationship based and knowing that they're hard. And oftentimes there's the fear of like, well, if I don't handle this right, I'll screw it up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I want to then give myself the time to really think about it. But I think that then, at least I know that sometimes I just don't actually think about it. I tell myself I will. And then you go three weeks later and you just kind of are piling up this like list of things to handle. And then one day it just pops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And everyone seems to be pretty familiar with this. Like we've all kind of had That's that so experience. Common. Yeah. But it's really hard to break those habits mm-hmm. <clears throat> with people. Um, I think one one way this translated directly into work that I liked, um, Andy Grove said in High Output Management, like the first 30 minutes of a one-on-one or, or the last 30 minutes of a one-on-one are always the most useful. Mm. Maybe even the last 10 minutes. Mm, yep. <laughs> because everyone gets through all the transactional, like, oh, this is what's up. This is kind of what's been bugging me or I need your help on this, whatever. And then the last 10 minutes, when I was at Mattermark, I started asking people, Okay, now like, what's what have you been avoiding telling me mm. for the last forty five minutes? Mm-hmm. And then some people would drop something on you and be like, "Why didn't you bring that up first? <laughs> that's what we should have yeah. been spending the meeting on." Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's uh-huh. just such a fresh one because sometimes you just need to give people the permission to talk about something that scares them or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and I think I don't know. This one's so complex because usually when you're avoiding something, you know something's wrong. Yeah, and you, you can know feel it's it. going to be hard. Yeah, and you're not sure how to fix it. Yeah. And that by not talking about it, you can just kind of pretend that it doesn't exist. Mm. I think people will do this for 
as long as humans are around. Mm-hmm. No matter yeah. <laughs> no matter whether a Holloway writes something on how to avoid or how to not avoid having hard conversations, yeah. even if we do a great job, we do the best job ever. I think people will still do it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's one that's like yeah. it's almost un. Undeprogrammable. Yeah, and this gets kind of into the interesting question about the nature of technology and how it influences human beings and how we use it to solve all these problems, but yet the the problems that we continuously face seem to be timeless. So they, they seem to be the same problems that, that, that people in Greece, St. Greece, were dealing with thousands of years ago and that there's no real, like, there's no fundamental change to the problems that we're experiencing. We're just kind of, like, fixing the window dressing. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think yeah. technology solves real deep human problems i think it definitely does Mm. i mean how do we grow food at scale for six billion people Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) we've kind of figured a lot of that out Uh (laughs) yeah like we got past the well we can't really feed a village of 30 interesting i think that's one example of just immense institutionalized knowledge that people Mm -hmm. are then able to use in order to make life at a certain scale totally possible yeah there's other things that are not so much. Uh-huh. Um, so, so we, yeah, so, we, so, so we've solved the problem of essentially really basic human needs in a way that's really beneficial. Uh, but then there are other kind of problems beyond those <clears throat> basic needs that are just have to do with human interaction and stuff like that. So I guess maybe yeah. what, what does what is technology's impact on that? Uh, so I have a, my roommate, he was, he interviewed me for his podcast that he wants to start called healing at scale. Okay. Uh, so whether technology can solve these or not solve, but help humans, uh, solve their own problems and stuff okay. like that. What do you think about that? Not in the terms of the basic human, uh, issues of, of, of food, water, all yeah. these things that are really important, but things that are like relationship. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause basically I think where you're going with this, which I think that I agree with is when you take people out of the equation, it's pretty easy to institutionalize knowledge about mm-hmm. it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. How do we, how do we grow corn at a higher yield? Well, right. Yeah. Like we can, we can institutionalize the knowledge on how to do that. Yeah. And then it's like, how do you, <laughs> how do you grow more corn and then merge that with another farmer? Like, yeah. I don't know. I think that I think I'm with you on this. So part of the thing I've gotten super excited about is um, one of the people that has inspired me a ton in my life. And we even named the company initially after him was Richard Feynman. And Feynman basically went and rebuilt physics in the Mm -hmm. 50s. Like he his belief was that people didn't really understand how physics worked. They just knew how to pronounce all the words in the right order. But no one really got it. Mm -hmm. And that's why they weren't making new discoveries is because they didn't really understand how it worked. Mm -hmm. And so. I've been inspired by him because the more and more I've worked on Holloway and the more and more I've worked on startups and building companies and building teams, my conclusion is very few people have anywhere near a working knowledge of how human beings organize in groups to accomplish goals. Mm. Like just very few people, like you might have a little piece of it, but does anyone have a 100, 200, 300, 400, and 500 level working knowledge of how human beings organize in groups, accomplish massive you know, goals mm. to, to really grow? There's very few people that do it. Mm. And I know that he's controversial, um, but Keith Rebois on Twitter is one of these people that if I had to put my money on one person really it? like understanding mm. a lot of the different pieces of how you get teams together to organize i think he might be one of them Mm. um and i think even that being said we might be at a point where maybe even someone as knowledgeable as keith might only really get 20 percent of it Mm. and what if that what if we could get that up to 30 or 40 percent that people really get the basics of how teams come together interesting having worked on hiring and talked to so many different people on hiring managers a lot of it's kind of the same. Like the, the there's a lot that's disagreed on, but there's a lot of foundation that if people were just given the foundation on day one or two of learning how to hire, I think that they'd then be able to go work on the new stuff. And these systems can be written down, especially when you go talk to 40 people about how they do a thing. And you find out there's a lot being done in common, mm. but everyone's rediscovering it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the like going into like a cliche, but of first principles of, of of anything start with the first principles, or else you're going to end up with a faulty model of, right. of reality right. and stuff like that. And so, one of my favorite ones on this is like, go ask anyone working in a startup mm-hmm. or a business mm-hmm. to just tell you what a company is. <laughs> like, uh, 
I'll try. I'll try, try like, that one. <laughs> if you sat at a dinner table of eight startup CEOs, uh-huh. and you're like write out what a company is, uh-huh. and you get eight pretty different answers. Interesting. But that's the that fundamental unit question. that we use to organize. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, <laughs> so what is a company? A company is a group of people who have organized together to create value and monetize that value and then grow and sustain so that it becomes a sustainable operation. What do you think? I think that that's a fairly good working definition. Uh-huh. Some people, it's like, well, a company is a business. Is a company uh-huh. the same thing as a business? Mm-hmm. It has a business different than a company. Uh-huh. Is a company a nonprofit? Is uh-huh. it for-profit? Mm-hmm. Is it, does it, can you have a company that just, you get four people in a room that organize into like a group, but they don't incorporate an entity? Does it have to have a legal entity? Mm-hmm. What is it like? I think that there's a lot of different nuance around what exactly basically that, that unit is. Interesting. Of what a company is. Uh-huh. What does it mean to have a successful company versus a failure company or a, or a, a yeah, a failing company. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting one. And like another one is if you just ask eight CEOs to write out the four steps to hiring great people. Uh, yeah. Eight different answers. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. And um, it doesn't seem that there really would be eight or 20 competing really good methodologies. Mm-hmm. There's probably a foundation that everyone can be building on and then have the competing methodologies built on top of that. But right now we're just arguing over all of it. Mm. Everyone agrees hire great people, but when you come to how do you do that, it's like there's a lot of disagreement Um, versus you would expect in a field that there could be foundation established, do that, build on top of it. And then there should always be room for heterodoxy where you can question the foundations Mm. and all that. But instead of it's just kind of like, it's kind of a, anybody's game (laughs) (laughs) so that's really interesting because it kind of gets into standardization and like uh, i'll try to think of a quick example i mean the internet internet protocols i don't really know the the technical stuff but essentially everybody has to get up and agree to what we're going to use for these internet protocols or another one for language uh everybody's okay i'll give an example here Uh, fascia fascia is connective tissue inside of the body uh um but it's the thing that connects your muscles to your bones. It also connects your muscles to your organs. It also connects your skin to your to your bone and your muscle. Uh, but it's the connecting thing that connects every part of your body to every other part of your body. So they've discovered it. They've known about it for a long time. Now they're understanding the importance of it uh, and they're tying it into something. And now they're breaking it up and categorizing it. But different people agree and different people disagree about what it does and whether the thing attaching my skin to the muscle is the same thing as the uh, thing attaching my muscle to my organs and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's it's all this different categori- categorization that, um, uh, so how can, yeah, I don't really have a question. <laughs> no, no, this is actually a really good thread and uh-huh. I'm opening my phone because I'm trying to find the title of a book that I read about this recently called oh. uh, The Master and His Emissary. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And The Master and His Emissary is this book written by this uh a brain researcher who basically is saying he wanted to research left brain, right brain. Mm. First rule of the book is everything you know about left brain, right brain, you can just throw out mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the creative one brain and the logical other, brain, like just cool. get rid of that. Uh-huh. One of the really interesting differences between right and left brain though, is that your left brain is all about categorization. It's one of the things that it does really well is it wants to put a label on everything. And so when does fascia, start being fascia and when does it stop being fascia and and when is it and when is it it's all about labeling that is this blue or is this green Mm -hmm. right when does it stop but there's the other side of the brain the right brain deals a lot more with nuance and so like well it's kind of a blue green Mm -hmm. (laughs) it doesn't have a label but Uh you know it you know Uh what it is the right brain is what is how a ceo knows what a company is without being able to tell you what a company is. The left side of the brain tells you exactly what that is, but there's kind of this struggle in the way that the two sides of your brain work with different things, some things that are much more concrete and they're able to be characterized and some things that are new and nuanced and Mm -hmm. a little bit more abstract. Um, But I think that's the, the point that I'm really interested in is that in the field of how do human beings organize in groups to accomplish goals, there should be more of it that can be characterized and labeled and taught than there is Mm. not characterizing and labeling everything Mm -hmm. because there always have to be new things that are being discovered. Um, 
<clears throat> one of the I, in college I studied history, and one of the last college uh, classes that I took was a history of scientific paradigm shifts. And so it was some of uh, uh, what was it? Oh, Kuhn. Just, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, Thomas Kuhn. Yeah, yeah Thomas, Thomas Kuhn. Kuhn. So uh-huh. there's really interesting class, but just how there's always these competing different, you know, eight different ideas mm-hmm. were competing for cleanliness, and how in germ theory and all there's all these other stuff that's garbage, and each time eventually it all you know, moves into one or two different sort of foundational Interesting. new fields. And that makes up what then becomes all of the science related to cleanliness. And then there's six new competing ideas. Five of them end up being wrong. One of them ends up being right, or at least More right, right in that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's very little rigor like that in the uh, field of how we create value mm-hmm. and how we capture it. Mm-hmm. Like how do we get together and go do something? So mm-hmm. Where do you even start? Well, yeah, and that, I mean, it seems like it, there might be a reason for that, and the reason is that the variables in science can be a lot. A lot of times, are much more clearer. But when you're in business, you're talking about subjective things that right. that are people person to person. That you know, two people have a conversation, and there will be two different versions of that conversation yep. that happen. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you another example of this that's been fascinating to me. Is when I was 19, a friend of mine uh, had the brilliant idea of starting a microbrewery when we were in college. Mm-hmm. And so we homebrewed beer out of our college. I went to a school in Ohio and we homebrewed beer out of his apartment for like a couple of years. <laughs> <clears throat> and we, you know, almost every other Saturday we'd be brewing two cases of beer, figuring this out. Uh, but that was the first time that I really taught myself something really substantial. Mm. Like, you know, kind of in college played around on the internet and I did all kinds of different things but like really from the bones up mm-hmm. had to learn something pretty complex mm-hmm. i knew I, I mean i was my parents always told me i was bad at science right you know i was like not that kid i was the english and history uh-huh. kid the, the humanities. but suddenly i'm reading a book on the chemistry of how to make beer and i'm like chemistry just got really interesting uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. but i remember like having to fan out and how do you like how is this done and i went to barnes and noble and you know spent as much money as I could on trying to find a book that would tell you how to brew beer. And there's this one and there's that one. And I was reading all the online forums and it's like, it felt to me like the promise of the internet would be like, okay, we've established how to brew beer up until, you know, a certain point where then you're going to have to go off and mm. do your master's or your, your graduate thesis and, and figure out something new that you can then incorporate uh, back into the general body of knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, it feels to me like that whole layer of just exploration of a field to an amateur is uh-huh. just super complex and not clear and there's yeah there's no nowhere i would go to find that information yeah. i mean i'd go on youtube for a little bit i can explain my process and I, I had a similar experience with uh yoga and and movement and and be going into a bunch of yoga classes and having people tell you something and then my body started to hurt after a while and, <laughs> and like and understanding like why why did why did they say that yeah uh and they don't have an answer they, they just have an answer that somebody told me uh right. my teacher told me uh and the, the te- their teacher told them and so that was the answer. And so I started learning what the uh, scientific evidence is, is talking about movement. And there, yeah. there is actually a lot of information we have because uh, sports teams um, make a lot of money. And so they can funnel a lot of investment into uh, research about what actually makes people perform better. So we yep. actually have a lot of good concrete knowledge about yep. all, about movement and how it, how it affects us and how what a healthy movement is. Right. And so I started to research all of this stuff and I learned the vocabulary and all this different stuff. And my process for doing that is a lot of YouTube, a lot of YouTube videos, uh, a lot of reading. So I've, I've, you know, and then now I'm going on Twitter and finding the authors of um, asking them questions on Twitter and stuff like that. But it's just this like giant, you know, amorphous blob where I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to go with this next. Sometimes I pay for courses and other things like that. And what you're talking about, if, if, if my interest was business, Holloway would basically be that where right. I would go, basically. Yeah. Right. Mm. <clears throat> and we hope one day we can do a lot more than business. But mm. that's just mm-hmm. that's just where we're starting. Yeah, which makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope we can work on this company for uh, decades. Uh huh. Cool. <clears throat> that was one of one of my criteria when I left my last company was I want to find something that I could work on for at mm. least a decade. Mm-hmm. So even if, if I have to bang my head up against the wall for eight of those ten years. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about that, and let's talk about. It seems like you would have good insight into what what. I'll give you my impression of what we're talking about. Basically, is that there was the promise of the internet. You know, we both grew up with the internet as as adolescents, probably, uh, and uh, we were promised like 
an information superhighway and just a place where all your knowledge desires could be fulfilled. Still not there yet, but we're about to see some, but, but we have a lot of things that we weren't promised. So like uh, uh, Facebook, a social network, I wasn't expecting that before 2006, yep. I, you know, uh, before Friendster, before uh, MySpace and all that stuff, you know, and, and, you know, all these random technologies that the cryptocurrency, like yeah. nobody was talking about that before 10 years ago. Uh, and, and, so what is it going to be like in five to 10 years? What is the impact of technology on like, it seems like we're, we're entering the age of acceleration where it really gets weird. Like, what do you think? Yeah. Oh man. <clears throat> I hope I, I, I I'm, I've, I'm afraid some of my answers just might be kind of trite. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I, I kind of feel like I just have no idea. Mm -hmm. Especially, it's also the meta also no layer ideas. of like, <laughs> uh, I turned 30 in a few weeks and, for the first time, I'm feeling this like there's this whole group of people building technology that are eight years younger mm. that are just into the, they're into the weird yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> way way more than we could have. Been. And I'm like, I'm right now. I'm over in this other place, really focused, right, and trying to understand mm -hmm. everything about how knowledge gets disseminated and mm -hmm. just nail that. And then at the same time, also learn how the hell to build a company mm. and organize and motivate people. Meanwhile, there's all this other stuff happening all over, like fireworks on the internet you know like <laughs> cryptocurrency it's like it's TikTok, like yeah. is it is is it is cryptocurrency gonna be you know the next semantic web where everyone talks about it for forever and then kind of nothing happens uh, or is mm -hmm. it gonna really be the reformation of the currency and you see it start to erode some of the scarcity that governments get to use for you know controlling trade mm -hmm. like some of the power of that is it really that crazy or is it somewhere I don't know or is it a mirage yeah. I kind of have no yeah. idea yeah. and right now I'm just like well I guess I feel a little bit more like an observer on that because mm. um, you can't get in everywhere um, so the cryptocurrency stuff is really interesting I think the most interesting trend in technology right now though is um, the trend the, the trend towards privacy mm. three ish years ago I have a one friend who's a and he works at a venture firm and he's an engineer and he is was always the friend that was like I'll never put an Alexa in my house mm -hmm. you know like he's always beating the the privacy drum and we we're just like ah whatever like and now it's been really interesting to see how the tides started to turn a little bit um, <clears throat> and it's not just here my family lives outside of Philadelphia and people are just like yeah mm -hmm. Facebook just feels toxic mm -hmm. or sitting on one of these social networks just doesn't make you feel good. Mm -hmm. I think that um, Apple seems to be doubling down a lot more on, you know, this is your information. And I just got an email today from Google uh, that says that they're going to be, they're rolling out a new feature for confidential emails that basically mm -hmm. are unforwardable, downloadable, printable. Oh, like oh, really yeah. interesting to see this trend towards all your information and data exploded yeah like clay shirky's uh you know here comes everyone mm. and everyone's publishing and blogging and taking your pictures and now there's kind of this reaction Contraction, yeah. almost yeah. like a like i feel like technology has this really interesting behavior that's a lot like respiration where like it takes a deep breath and expands and then it contracts mm. and then it takes a deep breath and expands and then it contracts mm. and i think we're in a contraction phase on a lot of that sort of explosion from the 2005 era mm. Like everything that started with Twitter and Facebook and Airbnb and Uber, now there's a little bit of like, well, all right, yep. we went wild there for a while. Mm -hmm. Let's trim the, the hedges before we let them grow again. And then no one's really, like everyone's kind of questioning like, well, what what now? Mm -hmm. Yep. Like, I, 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 where's the yeah. next, because we had the internet in the late 90s and through the, the boom. And then we had mobile, which was like, Every, you know, 10 years in a row. Those are the two that I think we really got mm -hmm. to have some witness to. Um, and I think right now everyone's kind of sitting here like, well, where's the next one? Yeah, we're like, in a what phase. Is it? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's biotech. I think, I think it's, it's the application of bio, bio of, of technology towards life. Um, yeah. 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 I think that if I had to put my chips somewhere, I would be in that too. Like, uh -huh. also, there's just good arguments for, under, you know, that if you really... Like the computer scientists, the programmers of 20 years from now mm -hmm. will all have a degree in some kind of biology. Bio, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I wonder about the big question that's coming to my mind is China and 
and it's not only with biotech with facial recognition technology as well and here in the US we're making ethical decisions which I believe are right which are to limit the the, the technology's influence in this but those questions aren't even being considered in China like well oh, yeah. it's it's easy to uh-huh. just say that um, that the US has the moral high ground here but uh-huh. I remember seeing when uh, was it American Airlines rolled out a facial recognition uh, ticket yeah okay well, yeah this is an intro yeah sorry yeah and um, and all these people were like you know, some people get the convenience and they're not asking questions, but others were like, wait a second, I just walked into the airport and used mm-hmm. my face as a ticket mm-hmm. and following up and asking and realizing that there's a Department of Homeland Security maintained database that has enough different angles on your face, which is not, a, it's like your passport and your driver's license are not enough angles to be recognizable when you decided to grow a beard and wear a hat and go into the airport. Whoa. Like in theory, the number of photos that we know are in a database because there's a good reason for them to be there Mm. like i gave you that for my passport and when you took my driver's license photo that's not enough training data to train i don't know maybe someone on the podcast listening can tell me i'm an idiot and i don't know what i'm talking (laughs) about because i studied history but i don't think that that's enough training data to basically have an accurate model of your face to be used as a secure mechanism to get on a plane or not Mm. Whoa, interesting. Um, but yet american airlines relied on a database yeah, and where did they get that? And where that database come from? Uh-huh. And we like to like take the moral high ground here of well, we're in the United States and we don't have a social currency system, or a social credit system like China, but yet we have a database. And we have a credit card score too, right? That is not, yeah, that's not regulated by the government. Well, maybe it is regulated by the government, but but is not actively promoted by the government. Whereas the Chinese have that plus the 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 facial recognition right. together, yeah. right? Mm. So that's like. I don't know. There's where is technology going? Like, where would I like to see it go? There's definitely the bifurcation of the Chinese mm-hmm. control internet and the technically, you know, American somewhat free internet. Mm-hmm. And then there's like mm-hmm. a European internet developing that is even more like yeah. privacy focused, but also like this weird bird. Yeah. And so you start to see these like multiple webs emerging Mm -hmm. and that i think is the thing that over the next like five or ten years like what are the cultures that will emerge around the different webs and the people that have access to each one and Mm -hmm. then there's the whole thing about shooting space you know satellites Mm -hmm. into space and Mm -hmm. maybe that's removing barriers to different types and like Mm -hmm. that stuff i think is going to be really interesting to Mm -hmm. me of what happens with technology in that front in terms of like digital borders essentially Yeah. 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 yeah 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 That's really cool. Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff we could talk about, but, but we're, getting, we're getting close to the end. But uh, but yeah. So what what's a what's we got about five minutes left. What is a book that you've been reading? You mentioned one book already, but what is a book you've been reading, or an idea, or an article that has really kind of um, influenced your ability to create uh, recently? Oh man, um, influenced my ability to create. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. I read about half of the Master and His Emissary. Um, the first. Is the master and emissary, is that like a metaphor for the for the left and the right side of the mm-hmm. brain? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, for, I believe it's the right brain being the master uh-huh. and the left being the emissary. Interesting. Um, but it was just an really interesting. The reason why I love that book is the first 15 or 20% of it is immensely technical. Mm. It's like, here's what's happening in this situation where the, the left brain does this and the right does that. In this situation, left does this, right does that. We know this because of this brain damage and this brain damage and this type of like patient and Mm. it was just really interesting to see like in all these moments this is what's going on with my brain this is why i'm reacting in this way Mm. and so i like to think we had like had a great back and forth with my friends on the saturday night about like do you believe in free will or do you not (laughs) is it real is it not and i'm just interested in like well how much of what's going on is something that i can actually control Mm. and i love the Mm. idea of having agency and control and like having power over your own life because it feels great. Mm-hmm. But then when you really get into like how much you're just reacting to stimuli, it's like mm-hmm. you're just reacting to stimuli 99% of the time, if not 100% of the time. But then I like this, and this is what's getting into creativity, is because the more that I can understand how my own brain is working and reacting mm-hmm. to different stimuli or whatever, the more I could, it seems to me that I'm able to create, through that having that knowledge, I can create systems that make me more effective at things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... For example, like one thing that I've done um, is every morning I have like a list of here's what my job is. And I look at those 10 bullet points mm. of like, this is what my job is. And then am I doing that? Yeah, and then uh-huh. I react to that and filter my day and through that's that the way you start your day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that, so that book was just really interesting and kind of like an awareness of how people work mm. and how different 
how all things work. If you like that, I mean, you might already get it. You have gotten what you're looking for, but uh, Behave by Robert Sapolsky is really good. Okay. Yeah, it's another thing where he goes like, and he splits it up into, he's a neurobiologist, so he studied the uh, neuroscience of it and also the biology of it. Cool. Um, and and, and uh, the psychology side of it as well. Uh, and so he starts from different buckets. Uh, so the idea is we, nervous system is a way for behave, for an organism to react to its outside, um, outside influences. So he puts it into buckets of w- what happened one second before you before you did this, uh, yeah. and that would be like a neuro the, what's going on in the brain, uh, or in the in the neuro, neuroscience part of it. Second would be like what happened hours to days before. Um, that would be hormones. Uh, so how does the brain interact with the pituitary to release hormones into the body? Uh, and then you've got what happened a million years ago uh, that's yeah. affecting your behavior, genes and stuff yeah. like that. And it's really, it's really interesting oh, because he super doesn't cool. have a dogmatic look at it. He looks at it from all these different dogmas and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, that's that's super interesting stuff. The, some of the master and emissary things that are interesting is also he gets into like, well, if this is the construct, this this is the tool that we use to experience the world and mm. shape the world, there'd be evidence of how left and right brain work mm. in all of our art in all of our, oh, you know, all everything that human beings have created and the different structures we built up politically, they would mirror the way mm-hmm. that the brain processes. So, and it's that's when it gets into like, oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that, that probably. I think if anything else on like the creative front, I think two years ago when I was starting Holloway, I, I read Deep Work. Okay. And that was like that was really. Yeah. I just tell people now, like if you haven't read Deep Work, you're just like. You've, you're using stone when other people are using yeah. bronze mm-hmm. or steel and or you're something. Lost in the, yeah, you're lost in the distracted web. <laughs> yeah. Understand how that was just yeah. game-changing, yeah. reading de- deep work. Yeah. One of, one of the you, most, you only need to read like the first two chapters of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm sure you can find a Farnham Street blog on that too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the most interesting forms of deep work I've found in my own life were uh, body work and massage and just kind of uh, when, when I I give a massage to somebody, uh, uh, um, it's like an hour where I'm just totally in it and stuff like that. And it's good because it's not connected to the computer because I have a lot of ADHD. And Mm -hmm. so I like, as soon as I get on the internet, it's like, you know, go anywhere. But, uh, (laughs) but yeah, but yoga and actually podcasts, like doing these podcasts are another form of deep work where it's like, I haven't looked at my, I haven't, hooked into the internet and maybe hooked into the internet through having a conversation about what you've found on the internet. But, but you know, it's like one hour of non-distracted conversation. I love airplanes for this. Mm. And like, I haven't, I've still never committed to the, like, I'm going to do work on airplanes. First of all, it only works Uh, a quarter of the time because the Wi-Fi doesn't work. uh, But like, I love the time on a plane where you're like, I've got a six hour flight. uh I'm going to read a book (laughs) or I'm going to read for six hours. Uh Yeah. And, there's no, there's nothing competing for my yeah. attention mm-hmm. other than just a book. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I love that. I love that time. Yeah. One other thing I'll share, just cause it seems mm-hmm. like you're interested in the like fun, interesting little things. Um, I went back and looked at all of my writing from mm-hmm. 2018. Mm-hmm. I literally, I opened up a document where I took notes on my own writing from my, for a year of journal entries. It was like 180 entries or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I just took notes on the themes mm-hmm. and I realized over the course of 2018, I was writing about 10 things hmm. over and over and over mm-hmm. and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And some of them I had made progress on and other ones as I, I was making no progress on. And it was cool to identify each one of those. And then um, one of them was that I was just really grateful for great relationships in mm-hmm. my life and how mm-hmm. much connecting with people gives me a sense of just like stability to build from. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started this thing on the recommendation of a friend where um when i got the writing bug i would just sit down and i just uh i would write like 10 or 12 paragraphs of just like whatever was on my mind Uh, anything sometimes uh, it's really personal sometimes it's just whimsical and silly or crazy and then i don't edit it and i send it to like the 30 closest people to me uh, and and it's just a bcc email Uh and i'm like i just push send and then that's it and then next time i meet up with those people They've read it. And instead of having to be like, oh, well, how are you? It's a way to like short circuit all of the pleasantries mm-hmm. and sort of like, get to the core. you just can go, you can just put on the scuba gear and go down and like talk <laughs> about something deep immediately. Go into the depth. And it's super cool. Oh. It's like, I want to, I want to push more on that. If I wasn't working on Holloway, I think I would be working somehow on what's happening with that because uh-huh. it's facilitating these super cool connections mm-hmm. with people that, and people comment on it. And it's like, it's really rich. 
So I don't know. It's just another that's interesting beautiful. fun thing. Yeah, that's a really good idea. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, highly recommend that people just open up a BCC, type in your 10 best friends, and just write 10 Dump. 12 paragraphs and push send. <laughs> <laughs> such a good idea. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Yeah, this is awesome. This is cool. How can people find out more about what you're working on? Um, People can go to holloway.com, H-O-L-L-O-W-A-Y.com. That's where almost everything's on there. We've got a section about kind of what we're doing on the About page. Uh, And then also, um, you can find me on Twitter, um, SparksZilla, Sparks, S-P-A-R-K-S-Z-I-L-L-A. That's what you get for giving yourself a Twitter account when you're 19. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm usually slow to respond to DMs, but I will respond. Or you can email me at andy at holloway.com. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope it was valuable. I release episodes every Monday and Friday before your morning commute so that you can listen as you're in the car and going to, uh, to your place of work. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please consider subscribing at Crazy Wisdom uh, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or uh, leaving us a review. Uh, I'd highly appreciate it. Uh, you can also find me at on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III or um, on Substack where I'm writing a daily newsletter at stuartalsop.substack.com. Uh, have a great day and hope you enjoyed it.